Hi, and welcome to Breaching Extinction. Super excited to announce our new partnership. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash breachingextinction. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from, and you can access it on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. I had the chance to talk to Colleen Wheeler, the Jessica Ricos Orcas Fellow at Whale and Dolphin Conservation. Thanks. I'm super excited to interview you. Thank you for taking the time to meet with me. Sure. Always fun to talk to people about orcas. So Yes. Um, my friend texted me, um, Haley, who I think you met, um, but she like she was like, oh, I think I met the lawyer for the Southern Resident Killer Whales. And I was like, that's crazy. Like, I didn't even know that they had a lawyer or what that means. And I went and looked on your bio on, um, on the whale and dolphin conservation page. And it looks like maybe you're not a lawyer. I'm not sure exactly no. what you do. <laughs> Um, but yeah. I, I just want to hear about your experience with the Southern residents. I don't know if you've heard about my podcast or listened to it or anything, but I'm just trying to, um, have conversations with people about all of the different perspectives that are contributing to the population decline of Southern resident killer whales and the roles that they play, not only in the ecosystem, but in people's lives and in the communities here. Um, so mm-hmm. I would just love to hear about what you do. Um, yeah. So. Sure. Yeah. I started with Haley after talking to um, the ALDF at Lewis and Clark in Oregon. And I think maybe she missed my introduction of saying that I am not a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I work closely with a lot of uh, other people working on Southern Resident Orca Recovery who are lawyers. So I definitely referred to their expertise in, in some of the legal issues on those. Um, yeah, but she, she told me about your podcast and looked it up and sounds like you've had some really good conversations with some other folks that I know, uh, pretty well and and work with pretty often on on Southern residents. So you're getting a whole, a whole suite of, of people's input and opinions and experience, which is, is always good because this, this population and the threats they face are so dynamic. You can come at it from like so many different angles so oh, it's absolutely. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. one of the cool things about this population is there's a lot of light on them more so than I've seen in other endangered species. And so, mm-hmm. you know, with so many different hands in it and so many different minds working towards this. There's a lot of ideas out there and perspectives and it just makes for a really interesting conversation. And, you know, I think you and I have the same yeah. goal here. We're trying to save this population. I'm going to assume that's your goal. I think it's safe to assume. <laughs> um but yeah, um, I do want to inform people real quick about um, where you work. So you work at the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Charity. Um, and so I was reading online and it looks like your organization essentially just tries to protect cetaceans through like field research, education, outreach and working with governments. Is that correct? Yeah. So WDC, uh, it's an international nonprofit. We have offices in five different countries, actually. So we're, we're all over the world, um, working in various locations to, to do pretty much just what you said. And, and I like to say that our name is what we do. Um, we work to basically inspire and amaze people with the wonder of whales and dolphins and engage them to get involved with protecting them. So. 
depending on, you know, where we're working in the world, that can take a lot of different forms. Uh, here in the U.S., we do a lot of education and outreach, uh, working with agencies, lawmakers, um, state and federal, at, at both those levels, state and federal, um, to try to identify solutions to protecting uh, whales and dolphins in general, and then especially for working on recovery for endangered species like the southern residents. Um, mm -hmm. We do a lot of campaigning, legal advocacy sometimes. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but we do work closely with lawyers and other organizations um, and sometimes having representation for ourselves. Um, we do some fieldwork and research over on the, the East Coast, which is where our U.S. office is located. I work, get to work uh, solo out here on the West Coast by myself. So <laughs> kind of okay, a little different. nice. Here. Yeah. Um, yeah. But definitely, you know, we, we like to ensure the work that we're doing is based in the best available science. So when we have an opportunity to support field research and make sure that people are out there getting the best possible information because that helps us to kind of plan and advocate and, and push for the best policies that we think will make the biggest difference for, um, for these endangered populations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's really cool to see all of the people working together um, to contribute different kinds of science. Like I talked to Deborah Giles and I like, I just love her. I think she's super innovative yeah. and there's so many different people that are approaching this, like from, you know, the perspective of like cognition or like behavior or I don't like ecological factors. Um, but it's, it's nice to see that that is playing a role in policy as opposed to just, you know, it seems like historically yeah. we've just made assumptions or gone through and just dredged out parts of the environment and completely destroyed things. So it's, it's, I love that you guys, it, it seems like you it, like the whale and dolphin conservation has a really well-rounded um, perspective or technique towards trying to save animals. I love that. Um, so <laughs> Thank can you, you tell me like what like your day to day well looks like? Yeah, you guys, it's awesome. <laughs> um, but can you tell me like what your day to day looks like or like what is something that you do in your job? Sure. And again, it, it varies depending on, you know, what, what's happening and, and what we're working on at the moment because we do work in, in these very multiple different kinds of, of areas. So it, it depends on what's happening. Um, we do, again, a lot of education and outreach. I live down in Oregon. So I'm in kind of the, the middle range of the Southern Resident Orca habitat. So a lot of my work down here is focused on getting people in Oregon to be aware of this population and understand that they do come down off of our coast here and they're eating salmon from our rivers and kind of just starting with that, laying the groundwork of this is who the Southern residents are. They're endangered. This is why here's what we can do to help because they are, they're very well known up in Washington, but folks kind of further south in their range um, don't really make the connection that they're, they're here as well. So it's a lot of education yeah. reach. Um, we just mm -hmm. participated in Orca Recovery Day last weekend, which was super fun. Um, it's a event that started up in Washington State last year, but expanded significantly this year. So we were able to, to join in with the habitat restoration event. Um, so sometimes it is those hands-on events as well and, and getting people informed and engaged and out taking action. Um, and then 
kind of after that fun outreach event, I turned my attention to the task force report um, because that mm-hmm. final version, uh, the draft was available for review and comment for two weeks. So a lot of reading through that and kind of picking out what are some actions that could be stronger? What what could be better? What do we need to keep pushing the task force on to make sure it's included in this final report? Um, so a lot of policy is that reading through plans and reports and things coming from state and federal agencies and pushing them to to see how it can be stronger, better, or more impactful for Southern resident orcas and for, for other populations as well. So it's a pretty wide range. Um, working on campaign of activities for sure. Yeah. Activities, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of, um, kind of a computer when you're doing policy work. Um, so it's a lot of reading and writing and a lot of meetings and workshops and, and being, you know, at places to talk to people. So not quite as fun and glamorous as being out with, uh, with Dr. Giles and the conservation canines, but some <laughs> right. along with them and get a field day, which is really nice. <laughs> yeah, no, but that work is like so crucial. Like, you know, so I appreciate that there are people like you out there doing it. Um, so what are like policies are you currently working on or like, who are you talking to? Like what laws are you trying to change? Mm-hmm. We are one, one of my big, um, big projects over the last couple of years has been around this task force that was established in Washington state, both being involved with that. And, you know, again, trying to get really strong recommendations included in that process, but also taking what they're, um, they're discussing and what they're looking at and bringing it again down here to Oregon and trying to mm-hmm. instigate this change in Oregon to do similar measures that are happening in Washington to help recover the Southern residents. So um, habitat restoration for salmon is a big one, water quality standards. So we reduce the amount of contaminants and pollution that are going into waters and, and impacting both the orcas themselves and salmon. Um, that's a piece that kind of sometimes gets overlooked when we are talking about the orcas is that water quality issues definitely impact salmon survival as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, trying to improve those standards here. I know the salmon um, up here are endangered. Are your mm-hmm. salmon endangered as well? We have uh, in Oregon, you know, we, we share the Columbia River with Washington. Um, so there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of listed populations in the Columbia River um, a few of our coho populations here are listed as endangered. Our Chinook, our Oregon Coast Chinook, um, were just uh, petitioned to be listed as endangered. And so that's something that we are learning more about and, and talking with partners who work on salmon recovery here in Oregon to kind of explore that situation and see if uh, if numbers have declined so much that they should be listed as endangered and given extra protection, mm-hmm. you know, what, what the information is behind that. Um, I do right. come from a whale background. I'm a marine mammal person. So <laughs> all of these salmon issues yeah, yeah, are, are incredibly important for Southern resident recovery, but definitely not my area of expertise, uh, which is where we really rely on partners and, and checking in with the experts and talking to people and trying to figure out how can we uh, weigh in on this issue, making the orca connection. So, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's like so many different people that are involved with this and a lot of different minds. Um, and I think that this just kind of orchestrates, sorry, I know that <laughs> one. Anyways, it orchestrates how, um, complex the interwebbing of our environment is and, or the rivers on the Columbia, um, like that, the health of those is impacting the ocean. And then that is, you know, in turn going to impact other things. And on your website, um, I know that like one of your main missions is creating, um, healthy oceans or like healthy cetaceans, um, and how that impacts the rest of the ocean. And so I think, you know, a lot of people may view this as like, oh, we're just trying to save one species, but not necessarily, you know, we can, um, kind of foster a much healthier ocean population in general mm-hmm. and a much healthier environment. Like if we focus on these individuals, but that's just going to continue to trickle in the way that it has when we've done things that have been terrible to the environment. So yeah, no, we, we like to talk a lot about the ecological whale and kind of explore some, some new or uh, overarching reasons why we as people really do need healthy populations of whales. It It isn't just because whales are awesome and we love having them out there and like going to watch them. Um, and you know, for Southern residents, they have such a big cultural importance in the Pacific Northwest. Like that's, that's one reason for sure is, is just the connection that we as people feel with them and that tribes and first nations feel with them. Um, but it's also, there's this growing body of science that shows how important healthy populations of whales are to a healthy marine ecosystem. They act as uh, kind of ocean gardeners um, because they're moving nutrients around and helping to fertilize phytoplankton um, and actually helping like the surface waters to take in carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. So there's so many benefits to having good, healthy populations of whales. And we don't even, you know, we don't even know what the limits of those benefits are because we have been living with these, uh, kind of low population abundances for so long. Um, I think we've all kind of forgotten what those benefits are, <laughs> but that is something we try to decide. Yeah. yeah. As, as a reason like, Hey, you know, we like whales, but we also really need them. So Everybody needs to step up and do their part to make sure we have these healthy populations. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Take, you know, personal accountability, but also hold politicians yeah. and um, bigger entities accountable for their actions and how that has impacted the whales. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting mm-hmm. to look at um, the way that we study animals. And we haven't studied animals for all that long comparative to how long animals have been around. And then when you look at that... Um, in retrospect to human um, interaction and like the industrial revolution and impact, I don't know that we necessarily have all of the answers or know what all of those benefits are that you're talking about with cetaceans. And I think mm-hmm. that you're right. We've for- somehow forgotten um, or maybe we just don't know. And I think that's why it's especially important to continue to advocate and make sure that we are doing what we can to restore different populations so that, you know, those animals can reap the benefits and we can continue to reap the benefits, but you're totally right. It's not all about, Oh, like we need to save the whales cause they're cute. We want to look at them. Like there's a lot of, there are so many other facets that play into this. And I think it's really important to try to articulate that to people and further educate them. Um, so what kind of tools or resources have you found useful in connecting to other people? Well, luckily um, whales are, 
cute and magnificent and, and people really, them. <laughs> they just don't always, again, think about those additional benefits and, and those connections to things that are on our minds constantly. So whales themselves are just such a fantastic entry point into these conversations with people because they love whales. So if you're just out um, on the beach, for example, and, and watching whales from shore and just talking with people and getting into conversations or doing a lot of, uh, I've been doing a lot of presentations with various groups, both uh, on the coast in Oregon and in Portland and in other places. And we always get a huge turnout for anything talking about orcas because people just get excited by whales but we hook them that way and then hit them with all this other information about, um, you know, for the Southern residents, especially talking about their, their family groups and how they live and what their society and culture is like. People are just blown away by how intelligent and complex and, and how incredible they are and how similar they are to us. And I think that's a really important connection point for most people is talking about things like the the matriarchs and how long lived they are and how they share information and share food and teach each other. And it just gets people to, to feel um, really strongly connected to this population. And then Absolutely. you start talking, uh, you, you go into like all these other threats and environmental issues. And that kind of opens the door for people to get involved in and learn about um, how they can help save this population. And so I kind of call them the gateway drug to environmentalism because you're hooking people with the orcas, but then you're also talking about things like habitat restoration and how important watersheds and estuaries are because that helps salmon. But that's also, you know, a good environmental benefit for people as well because we need clean, healthy waters and we need estuaries and floodplains restored and good water quality and, and all of these other things that are connected to the orcas. And that's kind of the entry point, but ultimately benefit us as well. So yes, it's, it's yes. a good, it's a good hook, just the orcas. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that also demonstrates how um, we are connected to the environment and we need it. So people get so disconnected and they're like, you know, we live such manufactured lifestyles that, you know, I think somewhere along the line we got confused, but I think, you know, when we show like, Hey, if we save the orcas and we save these and, you know, we need the watersheds because we need healthy water as well. It just shows that we're all, we are all connected. And this is like a collective thing. You know, I think people mm-hmm. like to separate themselves from animals, but this, you know, it really gives people the opportunity to connect with nature and what a magical experience that is. And I like, you know, I don't want to go too off the, the deep end of being like, you know, nature's so awesome because it is, but like, you know, I'm not, everyone sees it like that. And I'm super excited about nature and learning okay. and everything. And I just want other people to see that magic as well, but you're right. You know, you start out with the orcas and then you get people hooked on other things. Mm-hmm. Um, what are like, so in Oregon, you guys, you have the, the Columbia river. So there's mm-hmm. watersheds and things like that. You, that you also talk with people about, or you like, how does that work? Yeah, we, uh, we focus on just kind of the, the salmon discussion as a whole and these different watersheds. 
the Columbia is definitely our, our biggest producer of salmon um, in Oregon and on the, the West Coast, really. But we have uh, the Rogue River down south. We have some of our coastal rivers that kind of contribute to some of the salmon abundance out there. Um, Oregon and California share the Klamath River, which used to be the third largest salmon producing river um, on the lower 48 states. So we had the Columbia system, the Central mm-hmm. Valley by San Francisco, and then the Klamath is kind of in the middle. And those were really the top three. And the Klamath goes from Northern California up into Southern Oregon. So we, we kind of have a span <laughs> of yeah, and Willamette uh-huh. up at the top and Rogue and then the, the Klamath down at the bottom. Yes. And I did see that the, um, the Klamath, they were successful in um, passing legislation to get those dams down. They're not down yet, is my understanding. Um, did you work at all on that project? Uh, so they, I'll, I'll, one correction, they actually were never successful in passing legislation. To, oh, okay. Um, it ended up, there were three, I think, three different bills at different times that were all blocked but because these dams are privately owned by the power company, Pacific Corp. Oh, okay. They, they don't actually need uh, congressional approval to take them down. They, it was part of this larger package deal that included a bunch of different things for restoration and water rights and all kinds of things um, that was developed through years of stakeholder conversations and bringing all of these different people together who were impacted by the dams and by the river um, and, and getting everyone to kind of agree to this, this package, but unfortunately mm-hmm. not Congress. So Pacific Corp, the corporation, um, and then the States of Oregon and California and the tribes that were impacted figured out their own plan <laughs> for moving forward with dam removal. So they kind of uh, went around Congress that way. Um, okay. Nice. For it. Yeah. And it's, it's taken, you know, definitely a little bit longer than I think anybody wanted to see, but it is still moving forward. And because they're going this kind of different route rather than, um, than getting a bill passed, they have to go through the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which oversees power-related things in the U.S. Um, and get approval for decommissioning and deconstruction that way. So... Okay. It is currently, it's going through that process and uh, it's kind of going some back and forth between FERC and um, the Columbia River Renewal Group, which is now the the entity that's overseeing decommissioning. Um, And it's kind of, FERC is asking for more information and they have to do this whole plan on how to take the dams down and um, figure figure out a lot of different things, but... It is moving forward, and hopefully those dams uh, will come down in 2021. And when that happens, it will be the biggest dam removal project that has ever happened in the U.S. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's definitely exciting. And I think that that could start a headway for getting other dams down. Because I know here in Washington, where a lot of people are working really hard to get the lower Snake Rivers down. Um, but there have been other successful dam removals, but you're right. That one definitely has a, a bigger scope. And I appreciate all that information because <laughs> I didn't know that. I thought it was yeah. like some kind of legislative thing. Um, 
But that's one of the cool things about this project is I'm learning along the way. Um, like, you know, I, I read up on these things, but I think sometimes when you talk to people, um, they have more information and the internet, mm -hmm. like, obviously everything that you read on the internet is true. Um, so <laughs> always, no, yeah. <laughs> always it's true. So believe it. Um, yeah, no, but it's, it's really good to talk to experts and people in the field and, you know, hone in on that, um, on like actually like what is correct versus what's not. So I appreciate yeah. that. Um, no yeah, the, so, the Klamath River issue was one of the first ones I started working on when I uh, when I started working on Southern Resident Recovery for WDC. And so that was back in 2014. And that was when it was still potentially legislation in Congress. So we, we worked on um, trying to get that through. And uh, again, just making the ORCA connection where it hadn't necessarily been made before and pointing out the benefits to this endangered population of orcas. And now that it's in this different process, we, we're continuing to do that. So as it moves through um, getting different permits from the state of Oregon and the state of California to move forward with dam removal, you know, we're weighing in on that and sending in information and, and letters and kind of highlighting um, you know, we, this permit needs to happen because dam removal needs to happen because it helps, you know, again, the ecosystem wide connections and benefits, um, and talking about yeah. impacts and, and could potentially be a really positive thing for endangered orcas. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so do you, have you gone out with the Southern residents and like seen them? Do you do any, obviously you've had to have seen them if you work with like around them. Um, but can you tell me about some of your experiences like with the Southern residents and why you have such an interest in this population? Uh, well, since I live down in Oregon, I, I don't get to see them in person that often, unfortunately, when they, when they are down off of our coast, it's usually in the late winter and early spring when the weather is not great. <laughs> and right. It, not really easy to get out on a boat. Um, and they don't come in close enough to shore here that we can really easily see them from shore. It does happen sometimes, but not super often. But I do get up to Washington at least once a year uh, and try to, to see them in the summer when they're usually around the San Juans um, and try to join, you know, some of the, the researchers like conservation canines out on the water and go help scoop poop for a couple days and get my field work fix in. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's nice to do that. But my, my personal journey with the Southern residents actually started uh, decades ago at this point, um, because my, my first introduction to whales and kind of what really got me obsessed and hooked and set on this life journey was seeing free Willy uh, in theaters. Uh -huh. Yeah. When it was released. And the Southern residents are the family in that movie. They play the wild whales. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. I so didn't know that. Then, I know, right? It's, it's got granny. It has ruffles. It's got all of the, the classic Southern residents. And so I really uh, fell in love with them at a very young age before, before I even knew that they existed or who they were. Um, and yeah. that, that is really what set me on my, my life path of working with marine mammals and eventually working in conservation and in policy. So, you know, fast forward through undergrad and, and grad school and starting to work with, with WDC. Um, I yes. as a policy intern 
with them. And then about a year later, they were developing this, this fellowship position, uh, the Jessica Rico's Fellowship or Orca Conservation, the full title. Mm-hmm. And that was developed in honor of Jessica Rico's, who was mm-hmm. a girl who um, was absolutely in love with orcas, kind of the same way that I was um, back mm-hmm. in the 80s. <laughs> and um, she was one of the students at Sandy Hook. Um, and so her parents wanted to honor her love of orcas by developing, that, yeah, to, to keep, keep her love and passion for them going, um, and then have a person dedicated to working on orca recovery. So we're, you know, we're kind of connected through, we both fell in love with orcas through Free Willy. Um, she was a couple decades after I saw it in theaters, but, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. that, just, yeah, it's really amazing that that was our entry point for both of us into just loving this particular population. Um, and I feel very lucky that I get to work on recovery for them um, with her memory and her honor and, and kind of carrying that with me. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I like have been fortunate enough to receive grants. Um, that's how I ended up going. I spent a semester abroad in Tanzania studying baboons. Um, based oh, wow. on a, like a similar story. And I think it's so beautiful that there are, that, that we've been able to see, and I've seen this, you know, a lot in conservation is like different legacies of people who have loved animals that continues to live on. And that is such a beautiful experience. And, you know, I'm so glad that that's, that she gets to be a part of your journey because I think when you carry that with you, like someone else's legacy and somebody else's heart, um, you put more into it. And, um, there's a little, I don't know, it, there's just something extra about it. That's really special. I'm glad that yeah. that's an experience that, you know, you've gotten to have, um, and that makes it really beautiful and that you're able to carry that on for her. Um, yeah, it's, and it's crazy how so many people can connect. You guys were able to connect over this, you know, this scene in free Willy, and that's where your love developed. And I think that's one of the central themes with these whales is they have cultivated connection and community mm-hmm. um, with people everywhere, like all around the world. I've talked to people in, I've interviewed two Australians who love the Southern residents and people throughout yeah. the state of Washington. And most of the people that I work with are, I mean, I guess there are some from Washington, but a lot are not. And there are so mm-hmm. many people that come out here for these whales and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really, uh, like, it's really such a beautiful thing to have that kind of community. It is how much they inspire people and even people who, in my experience, it's been as soon as they look like folks anywhere, learn about the Southern residents, they're, they're kind of, they're all in, like they might go their whole lives without knowing who the Southern residents are. But then as soon as they hear about them and learn their story, then they're kind of like, all right, I'm, what can I do? Like, I want to get involved. I want to help. I want to learn more. And so it's just something about this particular population and their, their background and their history that just gets people really excited and engaged and impassioned, which is kind of a really cool thing to see. Absolutely. And I've talked with a couple different people about this. I actually, I interviewed Bianca Ewan earlier this morning and we were talking about how these whales are so resilient and how they have a certain magic about them. She said that when she saw them, that they were so acrobatic and that that really struck her because they're starving. And, you know, we talked about how they're losing family members and how that is traumatic. And 
you know, they still have this vibrancy and magic about them. And I don't know that, and like, it, it, not to say the other animals don't have that, but there's absolutely something special about this particular population. And, you know, I think that they're what is, is going to um, maybe like open up doors to other opportunities to save other animals. Like we were saying, like with the estuaries and the salmon, like, mm-hmm. you know, they open that up and then that cultivates action and charisma and people elsewhere. And it's just, you know, it's such a a wonderful part of this journey. And you're right. People just want to get involved. And so that kind of leads into my next question, which is, you know, what do you recommend to people who want to get involved? Like what resources do you recommend they check out or what avenues or opportunities do they have to continue their involvement? Also, what do you think that, you know, is the most crucial thing for us to do now to save these whales? Sure. So we kind of discussed earlier, but there's that uh, kind of two-pronged approach of both personal responsibility and political accountability. And at at WDC, we like to say that it it takes a village to save a species. (laughs) So everybody can get involved. And I always like to remind people that no matter where you are, you live in a watershed. And so your actions do impact the ocean, even if you live in the the middle of the country and you haven't ever been to the ocean, your local river or watershed or body, you know, body of water, what goes in there eventually makes its way to the sea. So there's things right. we can all personally do to reduce our impacts on uh on you know sending contaminants and pollution and debris out to the ocean. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, single, simple actions we can take every day. And we have great resources for that on our website, whales.org, um, with information. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of stuff. Uh, we're doing a, a plastic pact. So monthly actions you can take to reduce your use of like single use plastics, which is a big, mm-hmm. big source of pollution into the ocean. Um, there's a whole webpage called Not Whale Food, which which talks about those types of things and how you can reduce trash going into the ocean. Um, we're part of a, a coalition of groups called Orca Salmon Alliance, which is 17 both local, regional, and national organizations working on these various aspects of southern resident and salmon recovery. And we have a great list of, of actions there as well, everything from... Uh, planting a rain garden in your yard to help filter toxics out of the water to, you know, making sure your car isn't leaking fluids because um, that's a pretty significant source of of contamination into watersheds. Uh, so lots mm-hmm. of people can do on the personal level. And then the political accountability side is really getting in touch with your elected officials, both in the state and federally. And Again, just sharing the story of the Southern resident orcas, why they're important to you, why you want to see them recovered, and asking your politicians to do more to fund things like salmon and habitat recovery, uh, improve water quality standards so that we have less uh, contaminants going into the water from big industries, um, doing more to reduce noise and disturbance from vessel traffic and from construction and from uh, naval operations, um, making sure that we have programs and agencies in place that work on Southern resident orca recovery and that those are maintained and given the resources that they need to actually do their jobs is always nice. 
Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's just multiple ways to get involved and and anything from, you know, changing things about your daily life to, to making a weekly or monthly phone call or sending postcards into your elected officials and just, you know, reminding them and kind of keep moving that ball forward is, Hey, have you, what have you done to help Southern residents this month? Like, what are you, what are you as my, my representative or Senator um, doing on this issue? That's very important for me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's definitely good. And we need, I think um, we've had a little bit of a, a wave of um, political activism ever since Trump got elected. I think that that was a wake up call for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And then I think people like Greta Thornberg are out there setting a great example um, and leading young people into um, political advocacy. And I see this podcast as a form of um, political Ooh. activism. I mean, maybe not political, but like activism in a sense. I'm having a conversation with people um, trying to spread awareness, but I think we need, yeah, like there's so many different opportunities. And if you just take a Saturday or a, an evening or something like that, like even if it seems minuscule, if we all do that, like, you know, it just, it gets us further and further. And this is not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, I think that a lot of Americans are very impatient and we want things done and we want them done right now. And that's not how policy and saving the environment works. <laughs> they didn't, we didn't get here overnight. We're not going to solve it overnight. And I just, you know, want to encourage people not to get discouraged when, right. you know, they send those things or when things still don't get saved because, you know, we all just have to consistently continue to take action over time um, and understand that this is a process. Um, it is a process. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. Policy especially can be very frustrating in the U.S. because it, it just takes a long time. And that's kind of the nature of the beast um, with policy. Like, for example, we have a proposal to expand critical habitat for Southern resident orcas out right now. And we're so excited that this proposed rule is finally a thing, but that's something that myself and many others have been working on for more than five years at this point. And Oh my God, it's, it's been, it's been a long time coming, um, but we're, we're happy it's here. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's important to not feel discouraged because policy can take a long time. But to also remember, you know, we are facing a crisis with Southern resident orcas. So n- none of these are actions that we can afford to to put off or kick down the road. Everything has to start now, because if we you know, if we put it off, it's going to possibly be too late. And even though policy does take a while, we have to start laying the groundwork and getting this this effort moving forward now so that they can benefit in the future um, and that we can absolutely we're doing the actions to to help them survive until they see the benefits of these different policies so yes yeah and we definitely have to be patient and understand that you know this is a lifetime's worth of work and I think when you were sharing how you got into whales like this is it's very clear to me this is your life's purpose is like to, to help cetaceans. And, you know, we, when we're trying to save a species or we're trying to do anything, we just, you know, things take time. Um, and hopefully in our lifetime, hopefully in like 40 years, you and I can have a conversation again and, um, talking about how healthy the population is. Um, but you know, I think that you have a lot of wisdom and a lot to offer and I appreciate you taking the time to share, um, 
like your insight and your work. And I hope that this, you know, inspires other people or, you know, gets somebody else involved and, you know, makes somebody think, okay, I'm going to take a Saturday or I'm going to take an evening because if we all do that, I know everybody's got their own lives to live and not everybody can dedicate their whole lives to whales. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, if we, if we all do a little bit, we can get there. Exactly. I genuinely believe yeah. we can get there. So I, you know, I appreciate um, you taking the time and um, do you have anything else you want to add? I'll just add that. I'm, I'm always hopeful. Um, as you mentioned, you know, there, there are things that everybody can do. And for the whales themselves, we've seen just, just in the five and a half ish years that I've been working on this, the, the population's gone up and down quite a bit, but we did have that period, um, in 2015 where we had all of these new calves born into the population, which is what I always come back to be optimistic and to give me hope is that we know that if they have better conditions, even slightly better conditions than right now in 2019, um, they're still doing their part to make sure that population mm -hmm. and their culture and their community keeps going, keeps surviving. So it comes back to us and what we're doing and how we're, you know, what our role is to ensure that they have what they need to keep surviving but we they're, mm -hmm. they're capable of continuing and of having new babies and getting those population numbers up just a little bit. Um, and then we have these two new calves this year, which are the first to survive since that 2015 uh, little little spike in in births. Um, and so far, they're looking pretty good. So again, that is what I go back to is that it is possible to turn things around for this population. Um, but we all have to, to do our part to make sure that they have the opportunity to survive and to thrive. Absolutely. Um, yes. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it's a good, good break from I, writing I, all those comments. So <laughs> I appreciate Oh, good. Yeah. Conversation. <laughs> and, Hopefully I'll meet you in the future at some point. Um, but yeah, thank you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Erica. Thanks for reaching out and thanks Haley for making the connection. <laughs> yes. Thanks Haley. She, she's a gem for yeah. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your All day. Right, All right. Bye. -bye. Bye.